Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Happy Friday uh, to you and yours. Uh, I am Jason Whitlock. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, update Uncle Jimmy. I talked with him this morning. Uh, he's doing well, uh, doing better this morning, and, and I, I feel hopeful that Uncle Jimmy will be coming home on Monday. Still may be some time before uh, he rejoins us, but uh, keep Uncle Jimmy in your thoughts and prayers. All right, uh, back for day two is my Asian brother from another mother, uh, uh, Steve Kim. Steve, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you got nothing to say? Well, I'm in, I'm in big seat here. I mean, you know what I love? Yesterday, you guys got my bad side. Yeah. Today, you guys got my not as bad side. So I'm really gotcha. happy to be on this gotcha. side of thing. Here. I mean, Steve Kim never stops talking. <laughs> and then we open today's show and you got nothing to say. I just let, let you lay out. You're the star. You're oh. the Johnny Carson. I'm the Asian McMahon. Do you? You're trying to play your role today. <laughs> Normally, uh, Steve talks a mile a minute. But look, <laughs> we got a... Unbelievable show today. Uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off yesterday. I started a fire about Dave Chappelle, and I'm going to restart that fire about Dave Chappelle. Uh, Shamika Michelle is going to join us. She's going to talk a little Dave Chappelle with us. Uh, Delano Squire is the smartest man on the show. He's going to be here as well to talk some Chappelle. And then we're actually going to visit with uh, Delano twice. Uh, we'll circle back and talk about uh, Delano's column that he wrote today about Merrick Garland, the Department of Justice, and the criminalizing of parenting. Uh, but before we do any of that, <laughs> I got to restart this blaze that I started yesterday. Now that's a fire! We're about to have another one. Uh, the society that outlaws personal offense suppresses truth and freedom. This is the danger of criminalizing thoughts and ideas, including abhorrent ones. Comedian Dave Chappelle is currently the number one target of the Thought Police. His latest and allegedly final Netflix comedy special violated the left's thought policies. He cracked jokes and made points that allegedly deeply offended the LGBTQ wing of the Alphabet Mafia the ruling family of the new underworld order. Did you get that? New underworld order. Uh, glad the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation has called for Netflix to remove the closer from its streaming service. A group called National Black Justice Coalition added its voice to Glad's. The NBJC is a Washington DC based black crew of LGBT soldiers. Chappelle is a wanted man, a fugitive accused of transphobia, homophobia, toxic masculinity, anti-Semitism, and truth-telling. Glad tweeted, Dave Chappelle's brand has become synonymous with ridiculing trans people and other marginalized communities. Negative reviews and viewers loudly condemning his latest special is a message to the industry that audiences don't support platforming anti-LGBTQ diatribes. We agree. That's Netflix, that we did not include me. Uh, Netflix platformed a comedian who thinks the wrong thing. So what exactly does Dave Chappelle think? He thinks that the Alphabet Mafia has created a world where we care more about hurting a gay person's feelings than the murder of a black man. 
He thinks sexual identity and gender identity have an outsized influence over American culture. He expressed this opinion by pointing out that the rapper DaBaby did more damage to his entertainment career with his criticism of gay people than he did shooting and killing a black man inside a Walmart. The truth is, Chappelle's thought crimes in The Closer are deeper than gay and trans jokes. The Closer challenged the entire orthodoxy of the ruling establishment. And it issued the challenge using the ruling establishment's weapon of choice, race. A black man from middle America declared war against the left's evisceration of masculinity in general and black male heterosexual masculinity in particular. Chappelle argued and quipped that Jews, feminists, and the LGBTQ movement are standing on the backs and necks of black men, preferably dead ones, to seize power. I wanna restate that because most reviewers are intentionally mischaracterizing or misinformationing the point of the closer. A black reviewer for, the, for NPR, Eric Degans, wrote a piece saying that Chappelle is, quote, using white privilege to excuse his own homophobia and transphobia. The Alphabet Mafia is clearly feeding Deegan's a steady diet of buttered biscuits, or Deegan is a made man in the Alphabet Mafia. Those are the only plausible explanations for a black man this badly missing the point of Chappelle's message. Chappelle cleverly and correctly argued that Jews, feminists, and the LGBTQ movement have seized power by covertly camouflaging their power grabs as selfless fights for racial equality. Chappelle used the baby as a proxy for heterosexual black men. He demanded that the alphabet mafia remove its foot from the baby's neck. Chappelle was talking about his own neck. He was talking about my neck. He was talking about comedian Kevin Hart's neck and anybody else's neck that identifies as male, black, and straight. I'm a writer. I can recognize literature even when it's delivered verbally from a stage. Chappelle conveyed an essay, a letter from a prison cell social justice warriors have built for straight black men. The closer should be renamed, I can't breathe. You're choking me. I can't breathe. You're choking me. That's the cry of straight black men in America. Do you hear us? Chappelle touched several third rails. That's why Alphabet Mafia soldiers have been dispatched to kill the messenger and distort his message. Chappelle is being accused of anti-Semitism for his two space Jews jokes that infer Jewish people rule the world and that they have gone from oppressed to oppressor. In the new underworld order, you can only crack those kind of jokes on American white men. Chappelle cannot generalize about the executives who asked him to wear a dress 
and the executives that sit atop a music industry that lavishly rewards rappers for denigrating black people. I risk being accused of anti-Semitism for daring to properly interpret Chappelle's comedy and for arguing his point of view is worthy of discussion. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not a conspiracy theorist either. I'm frustrated. I want to identify whatever secular forces are being used to castrate heterosexual Christian men, particularly the black ones. The gatekeepers of popular culture, the executives at the top of Hollywood and the music industry seem to be hostile toward me. They seem obsessed with protecting the feelings of feminists and the LGBTQ and casting me as a self-defined immoral thug with fantasies of betting Billy Porter. The Closer captures the battle between black straight men and the feminist LGBTQ movements. The left argues feminists and the LGBTQ and black men are all allies, natural allies in the war against Donald Trump and his supporters. Reality is quite different. Dave Chappelle doesn't hate Trump or his supporters. As he admitted in his comedy special, Chappelle goes to bars in rural Ohio and drinks with Trumpers. He lives among them. Great comedians cut through false narratives and expose the truth. Ministers and comedians are supposed to be guardians of truth. They're given permission to speak uncomfortable truths. They open the door for the rest of us to engage in difficult conversations. They create an environment where the truth can live and be talked about and discussed. The Closer is the most important comedic sermon ever delivered. It's equal parts Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech at the Second Virginia Convention and Malcolm X's The Ballad of the Bullet speech at Cleveland's Cory Methodist Church. BLM, LGBTQ, CRT, the Alphabet Mafia, and its megaphone, Twitter, have jeopardized free speech in America by outlawing personal offense. The price of uttering the wrong word or thought is so high in our new safe space culture that speaking the truth is too risky for too many Americans. In order to maintain a free and just society, we must tolerate people saying and thinking whatever they please, including things we find rude and offensive. Dave Chappelle is a patriot and a genius. I said it yesterday, mm. I said it again today. Mm. Mm -mm. Steve, uh, before we roll out to D.C. and get Delano, you have you have an early thought about this fire I started. Oh uh, yeah, I need I, I'm, I'm catching the backdraft here. <laughs> Good grief! A uh, couple things though. I, I saw a message from Dave Chappelle over Twitter where he basically lashed back, and it's clear that the closer had meaning. This is it. Like ever seen that guy who says, "You can't fire me, I quit." Yeah. Uh, he got out before they can get them. So this is very calculated. And it'll be interesting to see when is the next time, if ever, Chappelle actually performs again. Well, uh, he performed last night. Ah. In, at the Hollywood Bowl okay. in front of a big crowd, got a big cheer, and he's like, 
If this is getting canceled, I love it. Right. So when will the next time he'll do a Netflix special? That's what I specifically mean. Because now Netflix now is on the spot. Obviously, they've always had a political bent. They've had a cultural shift. But if they allow any outside party to then begin to censor them, now you have an issue. Because that's something out of the Pandora's box you could never get back. Let's roll out to uh, Washington, D.C., and see what uh, my man Delano. Uh, Delano, I don't know, have you watched Chappelle's special? I believe he was actually, and, and I know Dave's has been a Muslim, or maybe he's a Muslim, but mm-hmm. I thought Dave was really standing up for straight black men and calling out the people he thinks that are basically castrating us. And again, I want to change the name of it to I Can't Breathe. Uh, because mm. <laughs> that that's the way I feel in this current culture. So the, the special is actually on tap for tonight. So I plan on watching it tonight, but I'm very familiar with some of the controversy and because some of it is, you know, some of the topics he touched on are ones he's done in previous specials and he got the same lashback um, when when he, he made jokes about not under, he you know, he talked about the L, the G and the B, but not understanding the T and he come compared it to, you know, if he said that he was, you know, a Chinese woman uh, trapped in a, in a black man's body. And um, that joke didn't go over well with, you know, a lot of sort of popular culture. So I'm pretty familiar with the arguments. Um, I do think it takes someone like Dave Chappelle to be able to make them. Um, if this was Bill Burr or, you know, um, you know, another white comedian who was on Chappelle's level, uh, this would probably go in a very, very different direction. Um, but as you said, I think he has a little bit of protection left because he is a, a black man. And I have no problem with him calling out um, anyone for you know their contribution um, to some of the issues that he's talking about. Now, even though I, w- I will say my understanding of the situation with the baby is that he wasn't charged because it was ruled you know, a matter of self-defense. Um, I don't know enough of the specifics of that case to to get into it. Um, but even if you don't use the baby, there have been executives, whether they be be Jewish or white Protestants or you know black uh, you know black black folk who have been um, funding and commodifying you know self-destruction, death, degradation, and drug abuse through hip hop for decades. And I have no problem with anyone calling that out. Oh, I do want to say this, Jason, because you you brought up, you know, I think it was the the national, um, you know, black black coalition justice, justice coalition. Yes, 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 yes. I I want to draw a very straight line here, right? And and I think, you know, I know we're going to talk about my column later on, but it's it's going to be a straight line from what we're seeing from the 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 backlash with Chappelle to what we're seeing parents pushing back on in the schools. So the executive director of that nonprofit is a, is a guy named David Johns. He used to lead a White House initiative on African-American education excellence. A couple, this is probably 10 years ago. The last time I saw him, he was on the Breakfast Club with Malik Yoba and two transgender women. And they were talking to the Breakfast Club about issues, you know, LGBT issues and Malik Yoba's, I guess, coming out in terms of being attracted to trans women, right? who, again, by the record, just to keep this clear, are biological males. At one point, Malik Yoba says, he uses the term natural born women. And David Johns, 
as a teacher is apt to do, stopped him, made him repeat the term, the phrase, um, people who are assigned female at birth, which a lot of people have, have heard, and then corrected Yoba and said, there's nothing natural about that. Malik Yoba, for people who don't know, starred in New York Undercover in the 90s and was sort of the epitome of black heterosexual masculinity um, in the late 90s when Fox was having a, a killer run. They had Living Single, Martin, and Living Color, New York Undercover, um, all of those shows that were sort of marketed towards black folk. And there you see a man who's over 50 years old being re-educated in sort of the LGBT dogma in real time on air. And I think what Dave Chappelle is saying is the same thing that a lot of parents are saying. We don't, we're, we're not trying to have our kids uh, indoctrinated in this way and too afraid to speak up. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of you know, parents pushing back because once you give up the most fundamental truth of biology, that men and women are different and that men can't become women and women can't become men, once you give that up and you start repeating talking points like a like a, a mindless sheep, there's not anything that people can't make you say or make you believe. And the things that you believe impact the things that you do. Um, and I think that's why you see GLAD and these other nonprofits coming out because they know that if people ever decide to stop playing along, right, with the charade, that they're not gonna have a lot of space to operate. Um, and that's why they use inflammatory language. They talk about, you know, what he's, what Chappelle is doing is, you know, an act of violence. And they, they always want to supercharge the rhetoric. But I think people are starting to realize, like, this stuff is ridiculous. And I'm tired of playing along with it. And I think Chappelle is, is very brave in terms of speaking up about that. So let me ask you this, Delano, because I'm about 15 years older than you. And, mm -hmm. and, and maybe... I'm just an old man shouting at the clouds. But, but for me, I, honest to goodness, for me, and for the, when I grew up in the 1970s, 80s, idolizing my dad and his friends, and, and just, and again, not that everything that they did was right, mm -hmm. but I'm just telling you, for me, at my age, at 54, I feel like my whole, I, I feel like in the course of my lifetime, America has moved so far culturally that I'm the actual outsider, that a black man, heterosexual, with Christian values is the outsider and a pariah in this society. And I'm, I'm just, I honestly feel, it's, it's metaphorical, it's an exaggeration, but I actually feel like my way of thinking is being choked out and I'm just sorry, I just don't see my way of thinking as being dangerous, negative, something that needs to be choked out. I feel like, and because we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday in terms of there is a war on masculinity and it, it's, it's an attack on all men, but I feel like we are on the very front lines. We are the first group, we're the foot soldiers getting run over by the Alphabet Mafia army and destroying us. I, I, I honestly, I feel like I'm being choked out. Am I, is it the same for you, uh, a young man in his prime and a father living in Washington, D.C.? Absolutely, I mean, the, the culture has shifted 
I mean, you talk about a, a 180, and, and it's, it's not just, Jason, that, that the culture has shifted. It's that the, the shift has occurred so rapidly, right? 20 years ago, nobody would have said that, you know, Caitlyn Jenner or Laverne Cox or any other high-profile transgender person was an actual woman. So in, in, the, in the course of, and this is really less than 20 years, it's really maybe about five to seven years when everything just went off the rails and what has been normal for the past, you know, 6,000 years has now been made extreme and what was considered extreme for the past 50 years has now been made mainstream. Um, and it's not just, oh, we acknowledge that people who who think they are were born in the wrong body or think they're the opposite gender exists. That's not it. And I think this is an important point to drill home. Oftentimes people will say, well, what does it matter what people do in their personal life? It doesn't affect you. I think we've all seen that that, that is a lie because it does affect you because when people move from saying transgender people exist to you must affirm every aspect of their identity to now you must teach it to your children starting at the age of three, that definitely affects you. Um, and you see the vicious backlash to people like Dave Chappelle, I know he mentioned JK Rowling um, and other TERFs, you know, trans exclusionary radical feminists, so basically biological women who, who believe that being a woman means something. It means being an adult female human, right? Not just somebody who thinks that they're a woman on a particular day. So yeah, I mean, the culture has shifted tremendously. And I've, I've personally witnessed and heard men that I know, right, who they find themselves, when they're talking about, again, I'll just use Caitlyn Jenner, um, start saying she, she did this. It was her decision to run for governor. And, and I know that they don't think that, that Caitlyn Jenner is an actual woman, but it just goes to show that when the culture shifts and all of the organs of culture from big tech and big corporations to you know, elected officials and, and, and you know, advocacy media get on the same page, when, when, when the central party hands down the script and everybody starts to read from it, everyone below them, the, the, the workaday Joes, the average people, whether they believe the ideology or not, whether they've taken a class in gender theory or not, all of them end up getting saturated in, in this, in this uh, culture. So it, it is a shift. I think oftentimes, Jason, and you know this, as, as particularly in the black community, there will be people who say that men like me and you, who know that there is an agenda, they will mock us and say, oh yeah, y'all always talking about the, the, the gay agenda. Right. And again, this is not about uh, making excuses for people who, who harm people or, or hurt them physically. That's not what we're talking about. But in the black community today, it is easier to get um, a TV show, a music video, an award show, an elected official talking about um, anything having to do with the LGBT community. Right. Uh, resources so that transgender kids can get. Um, you know, gender affirming surgery, quote unquote, than it is to see any of those same people publicly champion the nuclear family and the two parent home, right? So our community has become hyper focused on issues of race and identity and issues of sexuality. And anyone who wants to talk, particularly a, a straight black man who wants to talk about the black family 
and how it needs to be reconstituted if we really want to make progress in this country gets labeled and branded a conservative. But I will say this, it opens an opportunity for conservatives because all of a sudden we're going to get millions of people into our ranks if we are able to pivot, not focus so much on elected um, you know, politics or, and, and government and, and really say the, the battle really is in the culture because who knows what comes after this. We may be talking about transhumanism in five years and how people don't actually identify as human, they identify as android. And people who hear me may laugh, but, but 15 years ago, none of us would have been thinking that people who say men can get pregnant would hold any power in this country. And that's exactly where we are right now. Well, I, I, I chop it all the way down to this. And, and look, I'm 54 and, you know, it's not as much of an issue for me, but I do think it's factual and true that within corporate America, in any work environment in corporate America, the straight black man is the lowest man on the totem pole. When mm. you go to human resources and they start talking about ideal employees and the diversity that they want to include, the, the last guy on that, and I, I know white dudes are listening to this going, nah, it's me. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I disagree. And I, and I don't disagree disrespectfully. Yeah, Chris just raised his hand back there and said that he thinks it's him. I get it, Chris. And, and I, I don't disagree uh, uh, disrespectfully, but I do disagree. They want the gay man or woman, the lesbian man or woman, the, and then if you throw color into any one of those categories, that raises you up the, the escalator, the elevator, uh, and then they want women, and then, and then to me, the white man comes in before the, I'm just, the black heterosexual man has been so demonized by music culture and popular mm -hmm. culture, and, and then because and then because some of us hold on to Christian values, we're really, really hated. And, and we have the audacity to express those Christian values in any kind of way. We're really. And so that's I, I try to tell my friends that have kids, I'm like, man, the world is being left for your son. He's last right. man up. Mm hmm. If that doesn't get you motivated to get involved and push back, and, and where I think the opportunity, and this isn't so much political, but, but if it's seen that way, I just gotta deal with it. But I thought one of the scariest points that Dave made in his uh, uh, comedy special that like no one's talking about, is Dave made it real clear, he's not anti-Trump. He does mm. it very subtly, but when he tells, you'll watch tonight, he tells a very long story about being at a bar full of Trump mm -hmm. supporters. And that's where this story about his friend Daphne comes to a crescendo. And, right. and Dave, again, when you make Dave's money, you work two, three hundred million dollars and you live in rural Ohio, you don't wind up at some hillbilly Trump supporting right. bar by accident. That's by design. That's who you like to get drunk with and who you're comfortable getting drunk with. Because he t tells the story. He has a good time. They love him. And so that to me, once black people realize like, hey, man, that little bright, shiny object, Trump, that they keep waving in front of you. We're all allies. We hate Trump. 
Dave really called BS on that in this deal. <laughs> was like, nah, we're not all allies. Th th this whole feminist deal, uh, I'm not down with. This is Dave I'm talking about. The whole LGBT thing and how I got to spend my entire life making sure, oh, I never say anything that hurts their feelings, but, but I got to step over black dead male bodies uh, mm. on, along the way that no one cares about. He called BS on that. And then I thought most provocatively and most dangerously, he said, Dave, in my opinion, is like, man, the executives running Hollywood and the music industry, the white Jewish executives running it, what they're doing feels oppressive. That's what he argued. And mm. I don't think he's speculating. He's been at the top of this industry. And he has cited examples. He didn't go all up into details in it on this comedy special, but if you follow his interviews from Oprah all the way over the last 20, you know exactly who he's talking about and what he's talking about. And he called it out and created the room for some very necessary discussions about who are the gatekeepers of a culture yeah. that is castrating black straight men. Yeah. It, it, and, and people are going to wake up and be like, well, damn, it's not the white conservative religious man that's doing this. It's actually somebody else. Oh, oh yeah. I, I think that's true. And I think for, for too long and, and I mean, in, in, in our community, almost every conversation ends up going back to slavery and segregation, right? The problem is we were emancipated we gained our freedom, but somewhere along the way, someone decided to put a for sale sign back on black folk. And it was oftentimes our leaders who did it. And our price is way too low. So when they sell us superficial representation, we say, here's our vote. When they sell us toxic culture, if, if it, and, and this was, this was back in the late eighties. So, so being, you know, having black men at the front of forefront of it, you know, was popular then it's sure we'll buy it. We'll, we'll buy it. We'll pump it. We'll repeat it. We will make it, you know, infuse it into mainstream black culture. It doesn't matter, you know, whether we call each other B's and N words and, 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 you know, show videos of us, uh, you know, disrespecting women and, and pulling their tops down and showering them champagne and shooting at, a, you know, other black men. It's an opportunity for some black men to make some money. So we'll buy it. And we're seeing the next iteration of that right now, where we are making it much, much harder to raise children in this culture. And, and recently, my wife asked me, like, so wh you know, why do you think that you feel so much stronger about these things? And I told her, once we had kids, the stakes got raised because mm. at some point I'm leaving this earth. I hope it's a long time from now, but I'm going to leave something back for my children and my children's children and my children's children's children, Lord willing. And the way things are going now, I don't know what that's going to look like. And part of the problem, and I put this squarely on the black leadership class, is that ours is the only community that spends as much time talking about the society that our ancestors had to endure rather than the society that our descendants will inhabit, right? We are leaving something to our kids 
And if you look around and you listen to, you know, the black elected officials, right? The Cory Bushes, the, the, the Ayanna Presleys, the people who, who argue that more abortions are good for the black community, that sex work is good for the black community, right? That men can get pregnant. These are the people that we elect to office. When you look at our cultural leaders, people like LeBron James, who pushes hysteria and de- delusion and neuroses. Oh, we're, we're hunted every day. Really? How, LeBron? You mean by, by black men killing each other in big cities? No, by renegade cops. Okay. That's what he pushes. And I, at our schools and our universities, in, in, you know, in some of these big cities, it's like less than 30% of the black students are reading or doing math at grade level. And what's the response from the black educators? Social justice education, anti-racism, equity. So you're turning out kids who can't read the protest signs that they're writing. And that is what we're leaving our children. So of course, other people are gonna say, look, these black folk, this is an easy market. We will sell them whatever. If we put a black face on it, they'll buy it. And in life, what people sell you says something about them. But what you buy says something about you. And I think what Dave is exposing is not just the the outside forces that are pushing on the black community, but he's exposing the internal forces which have allowed those outside forces to to penetrate our city walls and to take up shop in in our communities. And I think that he's doing a public service. And I think Jason, to be quite frank, and and, not not to to brag on, on you or the show, but that's exactly what we're doing too. The question is whether or not people will listen to it or whether whether they will be scared off by the people who say, don't listen to Whitlock, don't listen to Fearless, because they're just doing it for for white conservatives. Every white conservative I know is pro-family, pro-faith, pro-hard work, pro-merit, and and pro-objectivity. And that's not what we're getting oftentimes from our community. It's uh, degraded standards, degeneracy, dysfunction, and self-destruction. But as long as they package it with the right blackface, they know that we'll buy it. So I think a a big part of what we need to do is raise our standards and raise our prices and take the for sale sign off off the shop and say, we're getting out of this business. You guys can go find some other suckers to take advantage of. Boom, whoop, there it is. Uh, That's why we went out to DC uh, to talk to Delano, smartest man on the show. Uh, in the battle for the most fearless man on the show, although I still retain that belt. Uh, (laughs) You're our Tyson Fury. You're the white Fury. Or the black Fury. You're the black chocolate. That's what you are. So you show up to work every day. We're going to get into that a little bit more later. Yeah. All right. Uh, Listen, thank you, Delano. I want to tell you guys. guys. Oh, stick around. On the other side of me telling you about my good friends at Built Bar, we're going to roll out to the most fearless woman Uh-oh. on the show, Woo. Shamika Michelle. But before we do that, I'm going to tell you about my good friends at Built Bar. Uh, from Rocky Road to Mint Brownie to Double Chocolate and Peanut Butter Brownie. Peanut Butter Brownie, my favorite. Our friends over at Built Bar have over a dozen great flavors for you. Not only do they have a wide variety for everyone, all of their selections are healthy for you, low in calories and sugar, but made from 100% chocolate, you will not find a better protein bar anywhere. And I mean that Built Bars have helped me tremendously in my fight to regain control of my weight. 
and they can do the same thing for you. So stop waiting and go support these guys over at Built Bar. They support me and this fearless content. That's why you need to support Built Bar. Do it right now. Go to built.com and use the promo code fearless to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code fearless for 15% off at built.com. Mm. Time for a Shamoke show. <laughs> Uh, as promised, uh, we're going to roll out to North Carolina, North Kakalaki. I, I don't know what they call North Carolina. I used to live in, Car in North Carolina, or actually South Carolina. But Shamok uh, Show was here in Nashville earlier this week, Steve. You didn't, too bad you didn't get to see her in person. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Skype does her full justice. Uh, but the smartest uh, woman on the show, uh, and probably the most fearless person on the show. Mm. I'm not going to, we'll remove just the most fearless person on the show. Uh, Shamika, I wanted to get your thoughts on Dave Chappelle and the discussion we've been having the past two days. I know you had a chance, I believe, to watch the, the, the special. Uh, I think you watched or listened to our show yesterday. H have we missed anything from your point of view or your perspective? Well, I just wanted to say that initially when I watched it, I wasn't really super impressed. And I think it's because I expected that of Dave Chappelle. Just watching him over the years, he's always, to me, been very fearless in just doing whatever. And so I, I didn't think anything had changed. You know, what I did notice, as you were talking about, you know, he came after everybody. And he came after the, the Jews, the LGBTQ element of P. He came after Hollywood. He came after feminists. So I did feel like he covered everything. But when I was listening to you, you did point out that he did not say anything about black women. And there's a, a meme where it's all of these guns pointed towards black men. And one of those guns is, is from a black woman. So you spoke about how, you know, Dave got on everybody that he thought could be an enemy to the black man, but he did not mention black women. So when I, if I have to give him any praise, it would be leaving this lane open. And then I have to praise you for acknowledging that no one is standing there and give me the, the ability to step in that lane for a few minutes. Because I have been saying for the longest time, black women are above criticism right now. And I don't know why that is or where it came from, but it needs to stop. Because this is why you're, you're seeing us run amok and it's not helpful. This is why black women can be shaking their ass in a restaurant and when the owner tries to correct them, they go and ruin his Yelp review. This is why you can see Keisha Lance Bottoms tearing up Atlanta with an understaffed police uh, force and, and high crime, but no one will say anything about her. This is why Cori Bush and people like Stacey Adams are being uh, heralded as, as the epitome of black excellence when they could 
really be poster children for obesity, diabetes, and high blood pressure. This is why Joe Biden could have spoken to any woman in America that he wanted to, but he talked to Cardi B, who could barely string a sentence together, but no one wanted to say anything because she's a black woman. This is why you have single black women having children, having child after child, but no one wants to say anything as she screams, I don't need a man, while she teaches your daughters these same values and raise your sons to be gangbangers and no one wants to say anything to black women. This is exactly why I myself hold back a lot because I know that there's a group of black women that have would have a problem with what I have to say. But this is why right now, I don't care. I am like Miss Seeley when Harpo came to talk to her to say, I can't get Sophia to listen. Sophia won't listen to anything I say. And Miss Seeley said, beat her. I'm not saying uh, literally, but I am saying that black Black men need to start standing up and correcting the black woman because if not, we are doomed. So I want every black woman and any woman of any color now to march your ass through the cornfields, pushing the stalks to the left and to the right and come and step to me and say, you told Harpo to beat me so I can say yes, because it's time out for us not having correction. It is time out for y'all causing all black women to look like immoral material materialistic assholes. Uh, Jay, she said she was holding back? <laughs> she said she was holding back. Was. Yeah, was Not anymore. Back. Not anymore. Woo. Uh, Shamir. <laughs> wow. Now that's a fire. Now we uh, got more to unpack than a U-Haul truck. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she parked it right out there. Huh. Uh, uh, Shamika, I... I can't condone the use of the F word, uh, <laughs> but I get what you're saying, and 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 you know I, I'm I'm gonna apologize to uh, any of our viewers that were offended by the use of the F word. Although I'm not going to reject the sentiment and your point of view. Uh, again, as I started out this show. We can't build a society where we got to worry about someone's feelings getting hurt and 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 we have to worry that, uh, oh, if someone says something impolite or rude, we got to shut everything down and can't continue on with the conversation. Uh, you know, the word you use is a word when I was young, I used to use all the time. Rappers have certainly used it and they maintain their platforms and are respected members of the community, uh, despite you know calling me, you a bitch, me the N-word. Uh, and so I've spent enough time, I wanna keep it moving with the conversation you just laid out. I'm not gonna go on and on and on with, with some apology and act like I've heard something I've never heard before. Uh, but. What I am going to say is there's some truth there. And I think that Dave being married to an Asian woman doesn't feel like he can go there mm -hmm. and criticize black women because he knows what's going to get pushed back to him immediately. And he said in the uh, he's married to an Asian woman, he said on the closer that he liked dirty feet white women. He, he said that in the closer. And so 
I, I think that he thinks he's not the proper person to go after black women because of his uh, home situation. What, 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 what do you, you, you cut him any slack or uh, how do you respond to that? You know, I understand why he would have, you know, reservations about going after black women. But as I said, I praise him for that because now it leaves the space for me to do it. And I maybe wouldn't have the platform to do it if it wasn't for you and if it wasn't for Dave forgetting that. So I am grateful that he didn't say anything because here I am. And people that have been following me for a very long time know that I've been saying this. And this is the Shamika they've been saying, when is she coming? back. So now I'm here to tell them, guess who's back in the house? I got a lot to say and I'm not going to be afraid to say it. So thank you, Dave, for, for forgetting that. I got you. <laughs> Shamika, Steve Kim here. Great seeing you again. I have a question. I'm just curious. How much Kevin Samuels have you watched? And if you've watched any of him, what, what are your thoughts on The Godfather? So I've watched some because I've had men to send me his clips, people that have followed me for a long time. I've had men send me these clips and say, you got to look at him. Look at what he's saying. This is what you've been saying, because I, of course, I have a smaller platform. Right. But I've been saying these things for years. And so I have seen him and they'll want to get my take. And I say, while I don't agree with every single thing, he is spot on. And I'm so glad that now we have someone, a man that's saying that because, you know, if we work together, we can maybe make some changes. Hmm. Uh, did you have any other thoughts on the Chappelle uh, comedy special or our conversation beyond the fact that, you know, Dave missed an opportunity perhaps to chastise uh, black women? What, what, what did I thought the thing was hilarious. I know when we initially talked, Again, you were kind of lukewarm on it. And I was like, well, hold on, Shamika, you, you got to I'm not sure if you caught everything that was going on uh, in this deal. But anyway, did you have any other thoughts? And I think my thoughts were because he hit everything. I'm like, is he riding the fence or is he just good at making both sides mad. Like no matter where you stood on this, left or right, gay or straight, like he had something to say about every everybody. And again, I just felt like this is what Dave Chappelle is supposed to do. And so I didn't spend the entire time laughing because he was just telling the truth. And I, I'm hearing what you say about comedians are supposed to be truth tellers. Ministers are supposed to be truth tellers. And I do think that both of those have kind of dropped the ball over the last few years. When you look at Chris Rock, in my opinion, after he got his teeth fixed and started wearing mom jeans, he just stopped being funny, you know? And, and so I, I expected Dave Chappelle to kind of bring the heat. And I agreed with everything that he was saying. And when it comes to pastors and churches, you know, you got churches called the gay church. How are you the gay church? And why do you not say, you know, everybody should be welcome, but sin is sin. I can remember sitting in church, knowing that I was in fornication, knowing that I had just crawled out of somebody's bed that I wasn't married to. And the preacher started preaching about fornication. And I thought to myself, who the hell told my business? Because I, I was convicted. Now people want to sit in church 
judge and don't want to be convicted. They don't want you to say anything. And overall, I believe this is why we are uh coming against masculinity because we want men to be soft. Women want men to be soft because if you're soft, you're not going to correct us. If you're real putting light, you're not going to put us in our place. So there is an assault on masculinity to turn men into women when women should just be women. Stay in your lane and let the men stay in theirs. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I can add anything yeah. to that. I, I, other than <laughs> I want to box that up and just uh, carry that around. I'd like to get that on tape and I can just, anytime I'm in a conversation, I can just play that. I don't have to say a word. I just let Shamika talk for me. It, this is the impossible. It left me speechless. <laughs> that hasn't happened in at least eight years. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, thank you, Shamika. Great job. Thank you, guys. Uh, you know, I think I don't think we'll ever again say that Shamika's holding back. Uh, I, I, I almost gasped when she said, I, I said, wait, that's you holding back? <laughs> no. That's your changeup? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to talk some sports uh, on the other side of this uh, with the man who, who watches as much sports and as much big a sports fan as anybody I know, Steve Kim. All right, Steve, Kim, and I get into Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, which is going down Saturday night. Uh, we'll do all that and more. All right, welcome back. It's time to change gears a little bit. Uh, talk a little sports uh, with our man Steve Kim. Uh, Steve, uh, it's a big weekend for boxing, and you are one of the top boxing writers in the country. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, I think this is number three in the trilogy. Wilder won the first. The draw, controversial draw. Most people thought Fury won. And then here's the interesting thing. I was just thinking about this right now. We were both at the rematch, February 22nd, Mm -hmm. 2020, when you're at the other network. And I think me and you are the only people that were at that fight that are now in Nashville. Think about that, the odds of that. (laughs) It's probably not true. There's someone from Nashville went to that fight. (laughs) You know who went to that fight? Uh, My good buddy Steve Ford, Ah. uh, who lives here in Nashville, owns a lot of bars and restaurants, has a couple places out in Las Vegas. So we're not the only ones in Nashville who were at that fight. But uh, I actually, I remember I watched the draw I think it was at a bar, and it may have been Marcellus's birthday or something. I that think it was December of 2018 at the Staples Center. Yeah, and then the the last fight. Uh, I want to start here. Do you do you think we're going to see a reenactment of Deontay Wilder coming into the ring under suit and armor, playing uh, very polarizing music? Uh, he turned it into a race war. I don't know if, if you've heard me tell this story, but you know, I was there with Papa John from Papa John's Pizza and LeVar Arrington and TJ Husmanzada and uh, I forget, we all go out to dinner uh, before the fight. And uh, we're all rooting for Deontay Wilder. Papa John, everybody is. Uh, he's the American fighting the Englishman. Or what, what is it? Am I right? Is Fury an Englishman or yes. what is it? Yeah. Uh, and so when, when Wilder enters the ring with the race music playing and the whole get up and gear, 
I sit over and look at like Papa John get uncomfortable. And it's just like, damn, I mean, because I'm t the guy is full on board, wilder, wilder, wilder. And then all of a sudden, Wilder turns it into this race thing. And I was, it was off putting to me. It was off. Anyway, do you do we think Wilder's going to play those same race cars <laughs> before well, the fight? Well, he's going to have the costume again. He's already announced that, and I believe some of the cloth is from Ghana or Africa. So he's going all in with this Black Panther motif. And it's the funniest thing, because the people that actually created this are these guys, two white guys in Hollywood who specialize in these type of costumes. And if you recall, the first fight, or the one that was the rematch at the MGM Grand, actually took place on Black History Month. Yeah. So that added to it. And, and quite frankly, I actually thought it put pressure on Deontay Wilder. I agree. I remember he was on stage with you guys when you were at the other show, and you yeah. asked him, does it have any meaning? And then another writer asked him that at the final press conference. And it dawned on me like, huh. You know, to me, February's February. No offense to anybody. And he felt a lot of pressure, but here's where I thought everything kind of fell apart for Deontay Wilder. He went full-blown Oliver Stone or Art Bell with his conspiracy theories. Everything from the costume weighed me down. It was 40 pounds. Uh, he had egg weights in his gloves or his gloves were tampered with. Uh, my legs were not there. Someone tampered with my water. He threw Mark Breland, his former trainer, under the bus. It was, you use the word off-putting, it, it came to a point where Deontay became a caricature of himself, really a self-parody. I've always liked Deontay. My, my dealings with him have always been very positive. He's kind of a wacky, zany, colorful character, the type of guy that makes you enjoy covering boxing. But, uh, Jason, he did not handle that loss well. Well, he didn't handle the fight well, <laughs> the loss well. <laughs> and that was the other thing, like... For me, and I can remember talking about this on Speak for Yourself with LeVar and, and Marcellus and uh, TJ, that like when you play the race card like that and then you get in the ring and get embarrassed, like that puts a stench on everybody in there. Like, Especially if you get beat by a white guy. That's what I'm oh, talking about. On yeah. that month. Oof. You play the race card and then the white dude comes in and kicks your butt. You don't put that stink on everybody. This shouldn't have been, this should have been an American versus a foreigner fight. All of us Americans should have been rooting for the Wilder. The race card should have been played. I've interviewed Deontay Wilder two or three times on the, the previous show. Really like him. Uh, I really like Tyson Fury though too, because I think we had him on the show, uh, Fight Week. What happens here in this third fight? I, I, I Fury's beat him twice, in my opinion. Why wouldn't he beat him a third time? That's right. The only variable I think is interesting is neither guy, because of the pandemic, and they had some legal issues in terms of the arbitration, is could you then extend the deadline for this third fight to happen? Because there was a third fight clause that whoever won it would then control the third fight. And remember, because of the pandemic, this fight couldn't happen last summer. It couldn't happen last December. Then Tyson Fury in top rank tried to fight Anthony Joshua till the arbitrator wagged a finger like the Kimbe Mutombo and blocked it, and they had to go back to the Wilder fight. Then this fight was actually scheduled for July, if you remember, Jason, and then he got COVID, supposedly, allegedly. And so now these guys have not fought for about 17, 18, 19 months. I mean, you don't need water in that corner. You need WD-40, as I like to say. There's, there might be a lot of ring rust. But Fury said something to a group of reporters that I thought was very illuminating. He says, I've been through long layoffs. He hasn't. 
I know how to deal with this. He doesn't. And there's another factor, Jason, that was really, I think, evident in that second fight. Heavyweights have unlimited weight classes. So you could be 330 pounds, you could be as low as 201. In that second fight, Tyson Fury came in at 270, almost 40 pounds heavier than Deontay Wilder. And the one thing I noticed technically and fundamentally, Wilder is fine when he comes forward and he's allowed to plant his feet. It's technically, he's not that bad. He has a big right hand. But Jason, he's like a car without a reverse gear. As soon as he's made to go backwards and pushed against his will, everything falls apart. And that's what I believe is going to happen eventually here in the third fight. First three, four rounds, Wilder's like a stick of dynamite. He can detonate that right hand. He's very dangerous. I'm very curious to see what Malik Scott, his trainer, has implemented. But it also worries me that they haven't had any chance at live competition with that new trainer. So I believe all of the tangibles and even the intangibles favor Tyson Fury to win by late knockout or score a decision. Is Wilder's right hand as deadly as people say? They say, I mean, they act like it's Ernie Shavers or they act like it's the greatest right hand of all time. Is it that deadly? I don't know if it's that deadly because his level of competition, his 10 title defenses, I don't think were really that great. It was more quantity than quality. And he knocked out Louis Ortiz, older Cuban fighter, uh, really bailed him out in that second fight when he was down on the scorecards. It's a hard right hand. I mean, he's the type of guy that I would call reflexive. He doesn't have great technique, but he has that ability to snap that punch off at any time. He could throw 100 bad ones, but he could throw the one perfect one. But it got him into trouble, though, Jason. He actually said to us reporters, he actually said it right in front of me, um, he said, well, a guy like Tyson Fury, he has to be perfect for 36 minutes. I only have to be perfect for two seconds. And there is the realm of possibility he began to rely too much on that right hand. The question is, can Malik Scott or has Malik Scott added other elements to his game? Is he more of a two-handed fighter coming into this contest? Sounds like uh, Cam Newton. Mm. His legs bail him out, and so he doesn't have to work on the other things. And, you know, Wilder has the big right hand, doesn't have to work on other things. That, and, it, and then when he faces, like, real competition, he gets into trouble. It's interesting you mention legs because Deontay Wilder, for has most not. of his le- life, has missed leg day. <laughs> his legs look like pixie sticks. I mean, I mean, people talk about it when he posts pictures with shorts on. And that's what I go back to. Every time Fury leaned on him and smothered him and took away that space, oh, my God, it was like an offensive lineman, a big, strong one, just pushing back a sled. And one thing about punchers, they have to have their feet set. And a guy like Deontay Wilder, who's a tall, wiry guy, they don't handle being claustrophobic very well. Looks like an NBA small forward does. and a heavyweight boxer. All right, uh, speaking, I made the quarterback analogy last night, uh, the previous night, uh, Thursday night football, uh, Matt Stafford. Big victory, the Rams rebound. He looks pretty good in the second half in particular, I thought. Uh, you know, I, I've always been a Matt Stafford guy. There's a lot of people that don't like Matt Stafford and think he's going to blow up eventually. I, I completely disagree with that. I think all of his problems were related to Detroit and the rest of the organization around him. I think the guy's a great quarterback, and he's proven it. In L.A. So Stafford's the latest white guy to do white flight out of Detroit. That's what you're saying. Here's the thing about Stafford. And he's the definition of arm talent. When people always say, Steve, what's arm talent? It's the ability to make any throw at any place on the field with accuracy, touch, velocity. That's him. 
But I've equated him, and I, we don't do that much baseball, but I played baseball my whole life. There's great guys that are pitchers that have great stuff. You look at them in the bullpen, and they're like, wow, this guy has every pitch. He throws 98 miles per hour. He's got a great slider. He's got four or five pitches. This guy should win Cy Youngs in 20 games. And you look at their stat sheet, and every year they win 14, 15 games while losing 12, and their ERA is 4.7. Why? They don't have command and discipline. Despite their great stuff, they throw more than they pitch. The job of McVeigh is to give him a little bit more support and help and discipline. I thought Jim Caldwell actually did that. They actually made the playoffs once or twice in Detroit. McVeigh was very frustrating to me last night, Jason. I'll tell you why. Early on in that game, Daryl Henderson's ripping off seven, eight-yard runs on early downs. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. Second and two. This guy has this big playbook. He you know, tells quarterbacks in their earpiece what to run. And I'm thinking, you can literally run your whole playbook, take some shots, kept running the ball. I thought it was so conservative that offense should have been called Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> and it was bad. So they're, they're scuffling around in a game that they're obviously the better team. And I give McVay credit, even though Stafford had that busted finger, he said, okay, we're going to take the handcuffs off. You're going to have to grow up here. After that clunker he played last week, he could not go through another bad stretch because that's what he's known for. McVay opened it up, went full-blown spread, shotgun empty, let him be a quarterback. And Stafford, even though he's a veteran, Jay, I'll say this, I think he actually grew up a little bit. Mm. See, I've always been sold on Stafford. I think the Rams are the best threat to stop the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Agreed. And, and Stafford's going to be the key to that. I think uh, Matt Stafford in his prime with the right – and they got, Robert Woods was unstoppable last Look, night. Look, if Deshaun Jackson stays healthy, yeah, that was the other, that's yeah. the key because he's the guy that could take the top off the defense. It's probably the one guy that Stafford cannot overthrow. And if De- – look, Deshaun, I've known about Deshaun since he was 15 years old at Long Beach Poly. He's always had the ability just to blow past people. And if he's healthy and you got Cooper Cup, who's got that deceptive speed, you know why he does, he's now a number one. He runs every route, so they have all the tools. This is a referendum on Matt Stafford. He's got the stats. Uh, I've said this, for the next four years, he's trying to make a run at the Hall of Fame because that has to come with a little bit of winning in the postseason. Because I'm, I'm a big fan of Phillip Rivers. Good conscience, I can't vote for him if I had one for the Hall of Fame. They better not put Phillip Rivers in the Hall of Fame, and I don't mean that as a shot at Phillip Rivers, but he, I agree with you. Matt Stafford has to not win. He needs a ring. A Super Bowl or two uh, before I'm ready to call him a Hall of Famer. Uh, I got, there's another referendum going on to some degree. Josh Allen. Uh, like Josh. Sunday Night Football taking on the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, this is supposed to be some sort of offensive explosion. Uh, Chiefs defense is terrible. Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes. Uh, who do you like, Bills versus Chiefs? Chiefs are, I think, minus two at home, which to me says they're not really the favorite. They're not the better team if they're only getting two, only minus two points at home. I'm doing the 180. I think this is a referendum on the Chiefs. I call them the Kansas Charmin Chiefs. They're soft. I've watched most of their games from the opener at Cleveland. One thing I've noticed, Danny Salamua, Ain't walking through that door. <laughs> Dino Hackett ain't walking through that door. Neil Smith ain't walking through that. They are soft in the front seven. And here's what's alarming. And Chris Jones. On the outside. That doesn't fit. They're trying to make a square peg round. He's better on the inside. Here's what I don't like about the Chiefs. They have that quality of when the Golden State Warriors were the dynasty. 
I've never seen a team have the spurtability that they did. They'd be down by 12 and then up by 18 within five minutes because they could shoot three-pointers. They could put on these big bursts. It's kind of what the Chiefs do. They over-rely, Jason, in my view, on the unbelievable greatness of Patrick Mahomes, who breaks every rule and gets away with it. That team's not tight. They commit a lot of dumb penalties. They're not very physical. And what I did like about their game last week against the Eagles, it's a one-possession game going into the third quarter. I happened to catch it. Andy Reid made the decision. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, even though he's dropped the ball on the ground a few times, and Daryl Williams, he said, you know what? We're going to be solid, and we're going to be sound. We're going to run the ball inside, keep the defense off the field a little bit, set up play action, not be so reliant on Tyreek Hill and Mahomes. I thought it settled the team down. And so that, to me, is a rough, and, I, and here's what I think. Buffalo is the second or third best team in the AFC. I think they got a lot of good personnel. But some of their defensive stats are really inflated because they have played a terrible schedule. Terrible. So the Chiefs actually are going to be fired up for this game. In front of the home folks, Arrowhead, they come out with the victory. Mm. You may have just talked me into a bet. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't bet money on my advice. Don't. That was a good argument. You don't want me to make money on it? Oh, my God. The only gambling I do is I'm an Asian driver, folks. Just, just, <laughs> just, just clarify everything. Jeez. A lot of pressure on me here. Uh, well, let's go to your real area of expertise. What's that? College football. Oh, it is? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's your real area of expertise. <laughs> Iowa, Penn State, number three and number four. It's like I buy Penn State as a college football playoff threat. I don't buy Iowa. I'm completely completely against you. I like Iowa big in this game. Big. And I'll tell you why. It's a home game, and Iowa has opened my eyes. When I think of Iowa, this is terrible, but I always think of well-coached teams with Kirk Ferentz, really good offensive lines, and they're slow. This team actually has some real speed. Tyler Goodson at running back, and I tell you who opened my eyes last week against Maryland, Spencer Petras, the quarterback. And I'm watching this game, and I thought Iowa was overranked. As I watched that well-coached defense and that team just run up and down and blow out Maryland on the road, I said to myself, this is Kurt Ferentz's best team athletically he's ever had. I just want you to understand what Maryland, you keep saying Maryland, Maryland. I agree. The, the, the Maryland's, you act like Maryland is. I get it. They didn't have Boomer Sison. You act like I Maryland is an SEC team like they beat up. Auburn, which I think Penn State actually Beat up Auburn. Auburn is like the sixth best team in the SEC. still an SEC team. You're talking about Maryland. Uh, Auburn nearly lost to Georgia State. Here's the thing. The way you win, it's not if you win. I use this in boxing all the time. If you score a 12-round decision over a mediocre fighter, I guess you won. But if you're really an elite fighter, you blow that guy out in three, four rounds. Iowa scored a knockout. I actually really like this team. Look, they beat Iowa State, who was highly touted. And they beat Indiana, who came into the year as a top-20 team. You talk about Iowa State and Indiana. I mean, oh my God, creme de la creme. I mean, aren't you? Your, your Big Ten roots are, are really ashamed right now. This is bad. Watch Iowa. Hayden Fry should be very proud of this team. I, I, I just think this Penn State team is actually legit. And maybe it's because I watched them destroy my Ball State Cardinals. Okay, Ball uh, State. <laughs> yeah, Ball State. I mean, you just don't put on your helmets and beat Ball State you Cardinals. You really don't. You really don't. Not this Ball State team. Anyway, uh, so maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong. So you like Iowa in this I actually think Iowa's really good. I'm just telling you, this is one of their best teams that they've had. And I, I grew up when Iowa was pretty good with Chuck Long and the Harmon brothers. This is a really athletic team, and 
Jason, watch their defense. They are ball hawks. They're incredibly well coached on all three levels. I'm going to take your Chiefs advice oh, and ignore no. your Iowa advice. Oh. Even though I started out to say and say your real area of expertise is college football. <laughs> uh, and there's a kid on Iowa's team. They're starting offensive, I think, right guard, Justin Britt. Uh, is uh, number 63. He's from my high school. Once it's a warrior. Probably, well, we, the best player in the Big Ten, uh, Purdue wide receiver David Bell. Are you aware of David yes. Bell? He's from my high school as well. Uh, so anyway, I don't know those odd stats. At Anyway, we're going to roll back out to uh, <laughs> D.C. and talk to Delano. Raise the intelligence level. Yes. Delano Squires. Next. We told you we would circle back to Washington, D.C., circle back to the smartest man on the show, Delano Squires, because uh, Steve Delano wrote his very own column today uh, about a, a, topic, a topic that's gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, the Department of Justice uh, are basically going after parents who go after school boards. Uh, Tucker Carlson's been talking a lot about this on his show this week, and, and Delano uh, wrote about it and gave his take today. Uh, so Delano, we're circling back. Uh, explain your take on what Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice are, are doing to parents. He's got them on the FBI most wanted list. Uh, you could be a target, Delano. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, Jason, I think what we're seeing here is a, is a clash of worldviews um, and a fight over authority. And for, for decades, parents have um, sat back and basically we've handed our kids over to the state to be educated. And, you know, a lot of people will say that there hasn't been you know, many issues with that. They'll say, look, I came out fine. I'm, I went to college. Uh, you know, I have a good job. I'm able to support my family. But we have seen a radical shift, I think, in education over the last couple of years. And um, school systems, administrators, teachers are a lot more open about their desire to infuse the classroom with, um, you know, partisanship, uh, partisan activism. And a lot of parents are just tired of it. Um, the media is making this, you know, about mass mandates and critical race theory, and and though those those things do come up, but I think it's it's about the things that their children are being taught, and a certain group of parents just being tired of feeling as if they're powerless. So they are starting to show up at school boards, and they're starting to make a ruckus and make noise, and sometimes the the meetings get disrupted. But um, I think the attorney general trying to criminalize that behavior and bringing the full force and weight of the federal government through the FBI, the DOJ, um, and other um, law enforcement agencies is a terrible mistake. But that's what happens when people start to lose power. They get desperate and they start to do things that show, um, that really display that desperation. And I think that's what we're going through here in, in this particular situation. I thought one of the best points you made or one of the best sentences in your column is we can already see what happens when absolute truth is abandoned for elite consensus. 
and you didn't go here in your column, but it's mm -hmm. where I've been going really since January the 6th. And, mm -hmm. and, and because this, this is all fruit from a poisonous tree in terms of what Mayor Garland is doing in the Department of Justice, in terms of January 6th was exaggerated and turned into this hyper-violent event. And it was a riot. It was inappropriate. But it was, it was a legitimate case of mostly peaceful protesters and we turned it into this, oh, it's this violent insurrection, and, and we created these false narratives that all these people died because of it. And one person died because of that, and she was shot by the police. But, but we framed January 6th as this hyper-violent clash, and I've heard people on TV, I've seen uh, Tucker Carlson show the videos, and people on MSNBC uh, comparing what's going on at school board meetings to what went on on January the 6th, that these are all the same people and they're all doing the same thing and they're all, there's this violence that we must stand up against and they're all domestic terrorists. And right. that's, again, we've abandoned the truth for a consensus that the elites established through corporate media, they all say the same thing. Oh, January 6th was an insurrection. And so they just create a false narrative and they start applying it and, and start categorizing people who, in my opinion, are justifiably upset, particularly when we're talking about school boards, and have mm -hmm. a right to voice their opinion. And as more and more people are being ruled as outside the norm and unworthy of having their voice heard, they're going to get angrier and angrier and angrier yes. and shouting more and more. And, and it's almost like the left is baiting them to turn violent, to see violence as their only responses, as they love to say about uh, black people. When we riot, and it's the voice of the unheard or it's the language right. of the unheard. I, I just that I, I love that sentence because I just thought it con conveyed and just you know, that's one sentence packed the punch of like an entire column. Yeah, and, and, and I touch on this in terms of, you know, the federal government criminalizing, you know, political beliefs, right? Or just, you know, making a new category of domestic terrorists based on thought crimes. You, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, right before 9-11, when Department of Homeland Security issued, you know, a terror alert and when I saw the clip on NBC, the person who, who went over it admitted DHS does not have any evidence of an, of an imminent threat, but it's just they're hearing more anti-government rhetoric. And I thought, well, I mean, there's always anti-government rhetoric. I mean, and we have social media platforms where people express frustrations all the time, whether those be people on the left who express frustrations with the police or they be people on the right who express, you know, frustrations with this current administration. But the things that they listed as examples of this anti-government rhetoric are people who are upset about, you know, COVID um, mandates and, and, and measures, um, people who question the legitimacy of the 2020 election and, you know, issues around the commemoration of 9-11. And to me, it it was such an example of the, the lack of substance on you know, with respect to what we're calling um, terror threats, 
but they they know that when they use the language it's loaded with with you know a lot of um i don't want to say baggage necessarily but those terms are, are loaded when you hear that someone is a domestic terrorist right when you even mention that the letter that i that i referred to from the national you know school board association they question whether or not the patriot act should be invoked to deal with some of these parents and i mean the fact that the attorney general responded to it this way shows that these organizations, oftentimes on the left, with support of teachers unions, have the ear of this administration. And, and Jason, I just want to make draw a clear distinction in terms of this administration's priorities. Right. I've, I've mentioned this, I think, once or twice before on the show. Before President Trump left office last year, um, July of last year, he he launched Operation Legend, which was named for Legend Teleferio. Um, a young boy who was killed um, in an act of street violence, and the Trump administration responded. The you know Department of Justice teamed up with the, the FBI, the ATF, the DEA. They went into about I think eight or nine cities, and they partnered with local law enforcement to do um, you know to investigate homicides, to get guns off the streets, to um, to you know basically to address street crime in the in these cities. Over the course of about six months, they made over 6,000 arrests, including over 450 for homicide. And anyone who knows, you know, anything about crime data knows that oftentimes when a person is arrested, is not that's not necessarily the first homicide that they've committed. This story got almost no attention, including from conservative media, right? And when the Biden administration came in, one of the first things they did was get rid of Operation Legend. Now, this was a, a program whose primary beneficiaries were low-income black folk in some of our largest urban areas. The Biden administration saw no, no need for it. But when he hears, when, when the president hears that um, one suspected, one you know, mass shooter who was accused of committing an anti-Asian hate crime, he springs into action. When he hears that a group of parents, largely white, and that's part of the reason that this is being responded to in this way, are raising a ruckus at um, school board meetings, he springs into action. The FBI gets called, the, the, the Department of Justice gets called, and they want to coordinate with law enforcement. But when it comes to um, black people, right, the, the, the admitted base and backbone of the Democratic Party, if the shooters are not white nationalists, if they're not, you know, neo-Nazis or Proud Boys or Boogaloo Boys, this administration is not interested. So a program that actually helped save black lives got the ax less than two weeks into this administration. But when uh, a, a nonprofit says that parents are getting too rowdy because they finally realize what their kids are being taught in school, then this administration springs into action. I hope that difference is clear to everyone out there. And, and I hope we can do away with this notion that, that Democrats care about black people and black lives. Delano, I've been told for a long time that there's strength in numbers. So as it, as it relates to this particular issue, would you preach or would your message be that more parents need to be involved, that they just can't stand passively on the sidelines? Absolutely, 100%. I think part of the reason that the the issues that we see in education have gotten this bad is because too many parents have discharged their responsibility for educating their children onto the state 
and have never checked in to see what the results were. And when I say education, again, I come from a, a, a you know, a, a biblical perspective, right? I try to think of it um, from, from that perspective. So when I say education, I see that as equal parts scholarship and discipleship. And one of the things that I, that I included in my article was a, um, a passage from, you know, the, the book of Luke. And it said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, a, a student is not above their teacher, but every student when they're fully trained will be like their teacher. So parents who think that the couple of hours that they get before or after school each day with their, with their children, and if they, once their children get, you know, into middle school, most of those conversations are going to be some version of, well, how was school today? Fine. What did you learn today? Nothing, right? Parents who think that that amount of time is, is going to counteract what kids are being taught 10 hours a day for 180 days a year for 13 years are kidding themselves. That's why you see, you know, families, and this happens a lot with, with you know, families who take their kids to church and will say, yeah, my, you know, my, my children are, are Christian and we grew up in a church. One semester on a college campus, and these kids are coming back telling their parents um, that they basically hate all the values that their parents were pouring into them. So one of the, 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 the benefits, and I hate to say it this way, but um, one of the positive consequences, I guess, of, of remote instruction last year is that parents started to see, actually see what their children were learning. And when they found out that their kids were being assigned sexually explicit materials, or when they found out that these schools have become completely race obsessed, teaching, you know, white and oftentimes Asian students that they are oppressing, uh, uh, you know, Hispanic and black kids and teaching Hispanic and black kids that they are victims, um, regardless of you know, their, their social status, like just by virtue of being black or brown, as they call it, um, that you are some, somehow a victim of society. A lot of parents are just getting fed up and they're tired of it. And that's part of the reason, and I mentioned this in the article as well, why you see the, the significant uptick in homeschooling, which basically went from about 3% before the pandemic to about 11%. And some estimates have, you know, uh, black families at about 16% um, of those homeschooling. I mean, my family would be counted in that number. Um, we didn't do it necessarily because of the pandemic. It's something we had already been thinking about. But I've relayed this, this you know, experience before where the, the charter school my daughter was at put up some materials around Black Lives Matter. They put up some pictures of you know, people who've been uh, you know, killed in incidents involving the police. And I emailed the principal asking you know, what was their position on Black Lives Matter. And I never heard back. And to me, th- that is indicative of what a lot of parents are experiencing. Schools who want to infuse partisan political issues uh, right into the heart of education and, and parents who want to understand what's going on and schools being unresponsive. So I think that's part of the reason so many people are showing up and I hope even more show up. Uh, I, I, w- I wanna say one more thing really quickly though. You notice how the media is seizing on the demographics of these protesters. And because they see oftentimes, whether it's in Loudoun County in Virginia or in other parts of the country, that it tends to be majority white parents, they, they are you know, um, shaping this narrative to be, well, these are families who are, you know, don't wanna confront this country's history on race and 
uh, are, are afraid to acknowledge their white privilege and all this other nonsense. But the truth is there are a lot of black parents um, or Hispanic parents or Asian parents or you know, parents who are immigrants to this, to this country who have no interest in activist education, especially in school districts where less than half of the kids are reading or doing math at grade level. So um, I do think this is an opportunity for parents to continue pressurizing the local school boards um, and everyone who has their hand in education. And what I wanna see is parents take back some of that power and that authority over their children's education. You know, uh, Delano, next week I, I, I would, there's another issue that I think is, is being ignored that kind of goes hand in hand with this topic is people have been sending me articles about funding for HBCUs mm. during the Trump era versus <laughs> what's going on right now in the Biden and his proposed budget. And it's pretty eye-opening and needs to be shoved in people's face that, <laughs> you know, you want to go look at the bottom line and turn who put their money where their mouth is, allegedly. And, and for, for HBCUs to be silent on this issue uh, or for the media that allegedly really cares about the education of people of color and, and the success of HBCUs in educating uh, black people has been incredible. And to see all that funding disappear between yep. these two administrations, but uh, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to talk about that. That means nothing, <laughs> it says nothing. That, that's all a, a scam. We gotta make sure we funnel all the black kids in the predominantly white institutions uh, and universities where their failure rate is is astronomical compared to their success rate at HBCUs. And look, I went to a predominantly white university. I have no problem complaints for. It. I was prepared for it. It it, it 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 fit me and where I was at as an 18 year old. That's not the case for everybody. And HBCUs have had incredible impact, success, created Absolutely. our best and brightest from MLK to. Oprah Winfrey, and they're not being funded the same way as they were <laughs> under the Trump administration. But no one wants to talk about that. Well, another thing I, I mm. found alarming, and Delon, I want to get your thoughts on this. I read a story that there are certain school districts that are basically throwing out honors and AP classes and saying, if you're gifted, you still got to be staying back with the mediocre students. So in other words, they're not raising the ceiling. They're lowering the bar for everybody. And I'm just wondering, 10 to 15 years, uh, what type of students and, and what type of engineers, what type of doctors and lawyers are we going to be producing we're when you lower the standards on everybody? We're producing kids who can't compete with China and India. And that's by design. And mm. <laughs> it's like I'm looking at people raise the white flag on America. And it, it's disheartening. Delano, we got to let you go. We're running long here. Uh, mm. Go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Uh, hit that subscribe, like button, leave a comment. Uh, we got the approval rating on Tyson Fury. Next! All right, welcome back. Time to get to our approval rating of heavyweight champion Tyson Fury. Uh, he, is, would he be considered a great white hope or? No, because he, he's actually made it. Delivered, yeah. Yeah. 
He's not, well, you know, Rocky Balboa made it, but he was still. Well, he's also fictional. Oh. Don't forget that. (laughs) Anyway, let's get to our approval rating on uh, Tyson Fury. I'm really fascinated by your scores, Steve. He's the heavyweight champion. You just said he's made it. Job performance, again, he's not an all-time great. I'm going to give him a 17, but my God, you give him a, a 10? One of the mantras that you and Marcellus would always say on that other show was Why that, do you keep calling it the other show instead of speak for yourself? Well, I want to be, respect this platform. But anyway, here's, here's the issue. Um, if you never show up for your job, are you really good at it? <laughs> I mean, let's just go through the history. He beats Vladimir Klitschko late November of 2015 and a lot of myriad of personal issues and other things. Didn't fight for two and a half years, right? So then this fight here, he decides not to have a tune-up since last February. This is an actual stat, and I've written about this. He's been the heavyweight champion of the world twice and has never had any official title defenses. That has to be some sort of record. So you guys always say one of the best abilities is availabilities. So for that, I have to give him a 10. Mm. It's not there enough. Mm. Availability. He doesn't have enough availability. I like that. You got a good justification. All right, character. Uh, we got a little agreement here. You know, I don't, he's, he's had some issues in his life. I've got him at a 17 as it relates to character. He's, you know. Uh, not that I'm going to complain about his weight problem, but that's, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but again, I, I will point out he's about eight inches taller than you, so the distribution's <laughs> a little bit different. Now, now when it comes to character, uh, I'm going to give him a 15, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Um, he is a character. He's funny. He's got charisma. He's a humorous guy. But there's been some issues here and there. There's been a PED I know. incident. Also, when he got COVID in the summer, we all felt bad for him until there were pictures of him that very same day out in Las Vegas. Huh. So right there, and I really like Tyson from a personal standpoint, but we got to keep it straight and honest. Got to give him a 15. He's got to get docked for that. Mm. All right, that's good. Authenticity. Having interviewed him before the last fight, I thought he was very authentic. He, I mean, he came in and basically told exactly why he was going to beat up Deontay Wilder and uh, was very confident before that fight. I found him very authentic, so I give him a 20 in authenticity. See, I think that's kind of high. Once again, I go back to that COVID situation where all of a sudden you're, you're, you're COVID positive. The whole promotion is scrapped. People are losing money, and you're taking pictures out and about. And, and there's always been like certain things that he said that have gone against things he said two years ago. So he always seems to be putting us on to a certain degree, which is charming as a writer. But again, in terms of overall authenticity, sometimes I, I think he really goes against his own words. So I got to go 15. Mm. All right. And then here, I think, is our widest disparity. Uh, it factor. Big, overweight, white guy. I just don't see a lot of it there. Uh, I'll give him a 15. He does have the belt. He's got the title. He's, you know, but but. Man, you got him almost at a perfect yes, score. Yes, because he has it. I love his saying. He says, I am a fighting man from a fighting people. He was born to do this, and he does it well. He's also a showman. He's fun. He's wacky. You can't really rely on him, but every time it comes to being inside that ring, there's something about him that he's a more natural fighter, and I think that's one of the keys. Deontay Wilder learned to fight. Uh, Tyson Fury was born to fight. Isn't that the very definition of it factor? Mm. It's pretty good, Steve. Thank you. Pretty good. <laughs> uh, Uncle Jimmy has texted me 
for you to get out of his seat. So could you could you do that now that the show's over? Get out of his it seat. It is warm. It's just getting yeah. comfortable here, get though. Out of his all right, seat. all right. COVID left over in there. Oh, in that case, I'll see you. I'll run. see you guys. Good right. week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve's out of here, Uncle Jimmy. You can be uh, happy with me. Uncle Jimmy's watching the show as, as live as we do this. Uh, can we play a little tomorrow for Uncle Jimmy? Maybe that'll brighten his day, lift, him, lift his spirits. We're thinking about you, brother. Uh, we want you guys to have a great weekend. I'm going to try to have a great weekend. That's it, and that's all for us. We'll see you on, well, you know what? I got to tell you guys, we may not see you on Monday. Let me just give you that little bit of warning. I got some stuff I got to do Monday, but uh, anyway, we'll see you early next week. We are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to be.